0: You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, it's great to see you. Go ahead and turn to Mark chapter 1. That's where we're going to be, Mark chapter 1. And just as you're turning there, just a quick preface. Uh, If you were here last week, you know that Valentine, one of our church planting residents, preached and uh, did a great job. And I don't know if Valentine's in this service or not. But wanted to give a quick shout out. I don't see him in here. Let's this, this go around. I wanted to just give a quick shout out to him and say thanks um, wherever you are, Valentine. And uh, just as a quick aside, I always want to do this when other people preach around our places. Just to remind you that that is a good thing. That is not a bad thing for other voices to be heard. Everyone wins around Stonegate when other people preach. So I'm going to be a broken record here for a second and, uh, and just say this one more time they win, the people who get to preach, because we're really serious about developing the gifts that God has given other people. And we would gladly take the lumps of allowing other people to develop in their gifts, as opposed to a future church plant taking that lump, right? So I want to thank you for just along the way. and Valentine was not a lump, by the way, last week. So I don't want to imply that, but there's probably going to be a few of those around, you know? And so I want to thank you in advance for taking the lumps for future church plants. And so uh, we want to develop those gifts. So it's a time for them to get to develop those gifts and exercise the gifts that God's given them. And it's a win for you. It is a good thing for you to hear various voices preach the gospel. That's a good thing for you. And it's a win for me. By God's grace, I want to be the pastor here for the next 20 or 30 years. And so that means I want to live and operate and preach at a sustainable pace. And so that's really important for other guys to be able to come in and preach um, for that purpose. So that's a win for everyone. So in that... With that preface done, uh, Valentine, thank you. We are in our text, Mark chapter 1. Let me just reorient you around the first chapter, specifically from verse 21 on. So if you're looking at Mark 1, verse 21 begins a day in the life of Jesus. So in verse 21, he gets up, and this is what it says. And they went into Capernaum, and immediately on the Sabbath, he entered the synagogue and was teaching. And his teaching was unique. If you keep reading there, you're going to know that it was a unique sort of a preaching. They had never heard preaching with that sort of authority before. They'd never seen that, never heard that, never, never, never seen that go down before them. And then you have this interesting scene that happens kind of in verse 24, 25 here, where uh, during that sermon, a person stands up and is demonized. And this demon starts talking to Jesus in the middle of his sermon. That is an awkward moment. Can we all agree? That's awkward. So, so you see Jesus' response in verse 25. But Jesus, and he's illustrating his authority over, over demons. Uh, but Jesus rebuked him saying, be silent and come out of him. And, and the demon obeys. That, that actually does what Jesus says. And, and so let me just point this out real quick. That Here's, here's the start of Jesus' day. We're not even like to lunchtime yet, right? And we've got Jesus preaching and preaching is, is, is pretty hard work, especially when it's done enthusiastically. And if you were here last week, you know Valentine preaches enthusiastically. That's hard work right there. I'm telling you, he's going for the sweat towel next time, right? I mean, he, he's got some enthusiastic preaching. And people who write about preaching say that about a, an hour sermon equates into about an eight-hour day. That, that it requires a lot of work from a person to preach well. And so he's preached a sermon, and now he's entered the octagon with a demon. And he's just worked this demon. Okay, this is is a full day that's already been had. Now, by the time I leave on a Sunday morning, so we preach a couple times, then we go home. And by the time I get home, I am looking hard for somewhere to get horizontal. I mean, I'm looking hard for a couch. And so you've got this in verse 29 where uh, you, you would think Jesus is ready for the couch. He is ready to get horizontal. He is ready to get about doing nothing. That's what he's ready to do. But you got verse 29 where it goes on and he goes to Peter's house. And he gets there and uh, looking for nothing to do. And he walks in and Peter's mother-in-law is sick. Now, I'm just surprised Peter didn't let her die, right? I mean, I'm totally joking. That is so wrong. That that was so wrong. My my mother-in-law is actually going to be in the next service. And I'm totally leaving that out of the next one. (laughs) so peter tells jesus that his mother-in-law is ill got a fever we've got a problem here jesus looking for nothing to do he gets something to do all of a sudden with this announcement from peter and you go to verse 31 and it says he came and took her jesus came and took her by the hand and lifted her up and the fever left her and she began to serve them Okay, so I'm just saying this is like the day that never ends. And it still still hasn't ended. Keep going here. Verse 32. That evening at sundown, they brought to him all who were sick or oppressed by demons. And the whole city was gathered together at the door. And he healed many who were sick with various diseases and cast out many demons. And he would not permit the demons to speak because they knew him. If you just want a summary of the life of Jesus, maybe you could think about the public life of Jesus like this. He, like consistently, this was just normal for him. He poured his life out in ministry and mission. This was just normal life for Jesus, pouring himself out. I mean, this is what's happening. This is a day, a fairly typical day in the life of Jesus, and you see that it is exhausting. It is about other people. It is about depleting himself for the good of other people. It is about him giving his life away to people, needy people. It is about him sacrificing for people. It is about him being 100% dedicated to the plans and purposes of God in his life. Jesus is about pouring his life out to others. Now, just a quick word here before we get going. Some of us need to see that picture of Jesus this morning and be confronted to that and with that. Because our life is not being poured out in ministry and mission. um, the, The old reformers, they used to have this definition of sin, particularly Martin Luther, where he talked about sin being the condition of being curved in on yourself. Where God has designed you to be curved out toward God first and other people second. But sin curves us in on ourselves. where all we can do is think about ourselves. All we can do is think about our little personal kingdoms and what we have going. And rather than pouring ourselves out in ministry and mission, our life is all about us. And I think just some of us need a gentle rebuke on that this morning. We need to see this, that the life of Jesus is about pouring himself out in ministry and mission. This is the public life of Jesus. But that's not all of the life of Jesus. Look at verse 35. Verse 35, so he's just finished a exhausting day. He's gone to sleep and then verse 35 says this, and rising very early in the morning while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place and there he prayed. Jesus's life was full of activity, full of like producing things, productivity. It was full of all of that. So that would be his public life. He's accomplishing. He's about the plans and purposes of God. But here's what we see in this passage, that he's also about having a great private life with God. He is also about getting by himself and getting with his father and spending time communing with God. This is what we're seeing in this passage, that Jesus, in the midst of a busy life, in the midst of doing a lot of things for his father, is also about getting alone with God and being with God. Okay, now here, here's the angst of this morning and let me just communicate this and, and then we'll, we'll start working through this passage. My angst this morning is that I, I really think a lot of us right now in the room are much better at doing things for God than just sitting and being with God. I, I really think a lot of us are a lot better at doing rather than just being. Of, of working for God rather than sitting and getting to know God. And I'm just telling you, like this week, God has given me like an ache in my soul for our church family, that that goes places for us. It goes to terrible places for us. When our public life looks great, I mean, we are doing and accomplishing and producing for the kingdom. I mean, we are out there advancing the king. We're doing all of that, but when our private life falls way behind that public life, that goes to disastrous places. That, that means something for every one of us in the room. And I, and I just wonder for you, if you are better at uh, doing things for God rather than just sitting and being with God, knowing God, communing with God, fellowshipping with God, just sitting and knowing God. I just wonder that for us. And let me just throw this last thing out and then I want to jump directly in here. Um, There is never a week where I stand up here and preach and think, man, I'm grateful I've just got that nailed. But I'm grateful that I've got that one just zeroed in. I I never feel that way when I preach. But but particularly this week, I I have just realized how far I am from what we see in this passage. I mean, I'm just seeing this on a personal level. And I am assuming across the room that that it is a part of all of our problems in the room right now. So with that said, let me jump in just on the private life, prayer in our private lives. I want to talk about five things here about prayer in our private life that we see in this passage. Here's the first one. Prayer in the private life. The first one goes like this. The priority of prayer. The priority of prayer. Look at verse 35. This is after an exhausting day, after a day that never ended. Well, into the night, sort of a day. Then, verse 35. And rising very early in the morning, while it was still dark, he departed and went out to a desolate place, and there he prayed. Now, there are some scary words in verse 35. Words like early. (laughs) And, And when you combine these two, it gets even worse. Very early. Now, now, for those who think very early is like 9 a.m., it also says, while it was still dark. Are we getting the picture here? That, the, here's what Mark is communicating to us. That there is nothing more important in the life of Jesus than communing with his Father. I'm going to say that again. He, he's showing us here, rising very early in the morning, at, well, it's still dark, after an exhausting day. Mark is showing us there is nothing in the life, of, no other thing in the life of Jesus that is as important as fellowshipping with his father, spending time with his father, just being with God. Like doing is not more important than just being with God. This is what he's showing us here. Okay, now you keep going here and he's going to show us again in verse 36. And Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, Everyone is looking for you. I can, they had legitimate needs. I mean, people were pressing and pulling on Jesus. And here's what Mark is showing us again, that even with people pressing and pulling on him, that there is nothing more important in the life of Jesus than Jesus spending time with his father. There is nothing more important in his life than that. Nothing. There's nothing that gets in front of that. Like when he gets pulled and pressed, When he gets squeezed, when Jesus' life gets squeezed, the thing that gets squeezed out of him is not time with his father. That's not the thing that gets removed. Anything could be removed before this gets removed. That when he is pulled and pressed, he still is going to make time to spend time with his father. This is the big idea. There is nothing in the life of Jesus that is more important than him communing with God the father. Nothing in his life more important than that. Okay, now let me just press this down over the room real quick by just helping us see this. Jesus is perfect, amen? He's the son of God, like God in the flesh. And Jesus consistently, you you just watch his life in ministry, he is consistently about making sure his private life, not just his public ministry, but his private life is put together. He is consistently about taking time, dedicating time, Carving out time to spend and concentrated, concentrated time spending with God the Father. Now, I'm just saying this, in light of that being Jesus's rhythm, the importance of that in Jesus's life, wouldn't we just have something inside of us knowing us that we are prone to wonder, that we are prone to forget the gospel? We are prone to forget who God is and who we are in Christ knowing how prone we are to forget those things. I mean, wouldn't we kind of have some sort of a sense of, that should probably be really important to us too. Like that should probably be at the top of our list. That just like Jesus, we should probably have something deep in our soul screaming that there is nothing more important in our life. Nothing. No, nothing that we're going to do is more important than just being with God the Father. Nothing. Nothing. This is the priority of prayer. Secondly, let's talk about the purpose of prayer. The purpose. Um, We have started a new catechism around our house. And a catechism is just questions and answers that help build theology into kids and families. Um, You should check it out. I'll just throw this out to you. It's called New City Catechism. You can Google it later. It would be a blessing for you, adult, and your kids. New City Catechism. Question 38 says this, or asks this. What is prayer? What is prayer? And here's the answer for for little kids to memorize. What is prayer? Prayer is this. Prayer is pouring your heart out to God. This is what we're doing in prayer. It's getting with God and pouring your heart out to God. When you think about the purpose of prayer, I I just want to make sure you're seeing this with clarity. Prayer is not mainly about getting things from God. It is about getting God like, we don't pray to pray. We pray to spend time with God. We, we don't set aside time to read and pray just to check it off of a box. We set aside concentrated time to read and pray so we can get God. This is what we're doing in prayer. And let me just give you a couple of images for what prayer is, the purpose of prayer in the Bible. The first one, I'm going to use a really popular passage. This is Revelation 3.20. You've probably heard, if you've been around the church for long, you've probably heard a preacher in an evangelistic moment throw out this verse. Okay, Revelation 3.20 goes like this. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Okay, now the problem about using that in evangelistic kind of moments in a service is that it's written to Christians, not unbelievers. It's written to the people of God. This is God saying that the sort of relationship I desire to have with you is across the dinner table sort of relationship. It's a dinner time relationship. It's you and I at the dinner table talking. This is the sort of relationship, the sort of intimacy that that I want with you. I want to come in and dine with you and you with me. Now just picture this dinner table like around your dinner table. And when when the dinner table is at its best, you know what you have happening there? You have a family gathered and conversation is flowing. And you know what happens when friends and family get together and conversation just happens? Conversation is playful. There's not like an agenda to it. There's not a, I've got to get it steered to here. It's playful. It bounces from that person to this person to that person. And you're getting to know one another. You're getting to see the passions of one another. You're getting to see the heart of one another. That's prayer. That's prayer. It's around the dinner table with God, talking, conversing, time with. Paul Miller, he has written a book called The Praying Life. And to get ready for this sermon, I've read it. And I want to just tell you, I want to recommend it to you first. And God has used it to do something to me. That's all I know how to say it at this point, just to do something to me. And this is how he, when he's talking about prayer and this dinner time, sort of a mindset of prayer, here's what he writes about it. Paul Miller, be on the screen for you. He says, our best times together as a family are at dinner, at home after a meal. We push our dishes aside and linger together over coffee or hot chocolate. We have no particular agenda. We simply enjoy one another, listening, talking, and laughing if you experience the same thing with good friends or with family, you know it's a little touch of heaven. When Jesus describes the intimacy he wants with us, he's talking or he talks about joining us for dinner, Revelation 3.20. A praying life feels like our family mealtimes because prayer is all about relationship. It's intimate and it hints at eternity. We don't think about conversation or words, but about whom we're talking with. Prayer is simply the medium through which we experience and connect to God. This is prayer. It's you around the dinner table with God, your father, talking. That's prayer. Now, now there's another picture. I just want to give you this, and, and we see this in Mark. There's there's three moments in the gospel of Mark in these chapters that that make up the gospel of Mark where we see Jesus specifically dedicating time to spend and commune with his father three times. One is in Mark 1 that we're seeing here. The other is in Mark 6. This is right after Jesus has fed the 5,000. And the last one is in Mark 14. Now in Mark 1 and Mark 6, both of those two times, it just says like this one. He went out to a desolate place, got by himself with his father, and he prayed there. It doesn't tell us any of the content of what he said. But in Mark 14, we've got the content. In Mark 14, this is the Garden of Gethsemane, right before Jesus is betrayed, crucified, and killed. So it's right before that whole episode goes down, and we get content, we get words that make up his prayer. And here's how it starts in, in Mark 14, verse 36, this prayer that Jesus has between he and his father. It starts like this, Mark 14, 36. And he said, this is how his prayer begins. Abba... That is like the personal name of like a father, like daddy, Abba, father. That's how his prayer starts. This is how it begins. And if you look at the life of Jesus, every time he's talking to God and you get the content of what he says, every time you see these words appear, father, Abba, father, daddy. That this is what we see consistently throughout the life of Jesus. And here's what he's doing, Jesus is doing. When he is praying, he is reorienting his heart around this reality. That he has a God that is Father and that he is Son. And this is what prayer is. It's you reorienting your heart around the reality that you have a God that because of Jesus has pledged himself to be a father to you that we get to cry out, Abba, Father. And we're reorienting our life around this reality. Because of Jesus, we are his sons and daughters. See, this is what prayer is. It's reorienting our heart. When you cut prayer to its core, it's about reorienting our heart around the reality of who God is, namely Father, and who we are in Jesus, namely sons and daughters. I love how one author put it. He said it this way. Prayer is about orientation. Orientation about searing the senses of the mind and heart with the white hot fact that in Christ, the cosmic Lord of the universe has become your father. That's what prayer is about. Searing the senses of your mind and heart with that reality. This is what we're doing when we're praying. We're reminding ourselves that we actually have a God who has pledged himself to be father, that we're actually sons and daughters of that God. I love how John Calvin put it. He said this, in prayer, listen, I love this imagery. In prayer, we climb up to our father's lap and we whisper in his ear. That's prayer. It was interesting, uh, yesterday morning, uh, Hannah, and and Hannah in our house, she she just turned five yesterday and she is our late sleeper. She is the one that thinks early is like, 11 a.m., not even 9 a.m. So she's our late sleeper. But yesterday was her birthday, and she was so excited about it. So excited that on Saturday morning, the day of her birthday, she's like the first one up around our house. And so here she comes, you know, pitter-patter. She comes into our bed, and she's right there in front of me and says, Hi, Daddy. (laughs) I mean, you know that moment where that's going on? Hi, Daddy. Hi, Hannah. And uh, she says, Daddy, I want to snuggle okay, come up and you can snuggle. And then she's just like chatty Kathy. It's, it's daddy. Do you know what today is? It's my birthday. Yeah, I know that Hannah. Do you know what kind of a birthday we're going to have today? We're going to have a princess party. Do you know that dad? Do you know who's coming today, dad? I've got all these friends coming. Do you know what we're going to do today? I mean, she is just going crazy talking about our, you know, this day that she has in front of her. She's looking at me. She'll say something like this, daddy, I love you. I mean, just this beautiful moment. And in that moment, it was like the Spirit of God just showing me with a tangible picture. This is what prayer is. It's climbing up on the bed with your dad, sitting there and snuggling and talking. That is the picture of prayer. And can I just tell you why this is so important for everyone in the room? Because you live in the 21st century and in America— chances are there's going to be a day that you're going to die and that's going to be in a hospital. And in this moment, I just want you to picture and feel this moment. There's not going to be your favorite preacher there, your favorite podcast in your ear, your favorite author's not going to be there. Likely your spouse, your friends and family, they're not even going to be there. And you're going to wake up at 3 a.m. in the middle of the night in a deafening silence as you realize this. I am about to die. And can I just tell you in that moment, you don't want to be depending on the God your pastor knows, on the God your friends know, on the God your wife or husband knows, the God your favorite author knows, that in that moment you want to be depending on the God that you know. Can we just see that for a second? That in that moment you want a God that you know as Father, not somebody else knows as Father. You want a God that you have crawled up beside and whispered in his ear, not somebody else doing that for you? I mean, can we just see that? That this is what prayer is. It's about knowing that God. This is the purpose of prayer. Now here's the problem of prayer. And this is where it gets interesting. Problem of prayer goes like this. Just to say it real bluntly, the problem of prayer is that we're prayerless, huh? This is the problem. Is I think when you look at your life, if you're like me, you're going to start to see that as you look at your life, that we are prayerless people. That our public life, doing things for God, far exceeds our private life, sitting and being with God. Now, when we say that, that's not something you just like acknowledge and then move on. That, that is something that should shake us to the core. That goes places disastrous places, maybe even damnation. I mean, that that goes places. We're prayerless. I mean, just ask yourself the question. Do you see yourself communing with God like this? Knowing God, fellowshipping with God, time with God like this. Listen to J.C. Ryle address this. I'm going to read a couple of quotes from J.C. Ryle here in the next few minutes. Old Anglican preacher a couple of centuries ago wrote a book called A Call to Prayer. Listen to what he says in this little booklet. Just on this idea of prayerlessness. He says, I believe that hundreds of thousands never utter a word of prayer at all. They eat, they drink, they sleep, They rise, they go forth to their work, they return to their homes, they breathe God's air, they travel on God's earth, they enjoy God's mercies, they have dying bodies, they have judgment and eternity before them, but they never speak to God. They live like the animals that perish, they behave like creatures without souls, they have not one word to say to him in whose hand are their life and breath and all things and from whose mouth they must one day receive their everlasting sentence. How dreadful this seems, but if the secrets of people were daily known, how common? Salah? on that. I mean, I, I just want you to ask the question. Does your, is your life marked by communion and fellowship and the enjoyment of God? Like actually knowing God isn't marked by that. And if you're like me, here's what I think you might see. That there is way too much of that paragraph that describes me. Way too much. You know, it's just interesting to me that I think a lot of us could give great lip service to what happens when we're saved. The moment that God saves us. We could give great lip service to the fact that when we're saved, God adopts us. He brings us into his family, right? I mean, like we are inside the family. We are sons and daughters of God. And we could probably even talk about what the implications of that are. The the part of what it means to be adopted in a son or daughter of God, it means that we have an all access pass to God, that we can know God, that we can spend time with God. We can have an intimate relationship, personal relationship with God. We can talk about all of that. But then if we ask the question, well, what does time with God look like? And we start describing the fact that we can't spend 60 seconds with our father without our mind wondering. Without really feeling like we should be doing something else. Like we're wasting time. We can't sit and enjoy God for just a second. I mean, there's no like these hand up moments where we just come up to our God and say, hey, daddy. I I just, I want to talk. I want to snuggle. Let's just hang out. There's never those moments. And can we not just all see that if we would say that we have a God and Father like that, but we can't spend time with Him, don't spend time with Him, the the problem is we have got a dysfunctional relationship with our Father. And I'm just trying to raise the question of how many of us this morning would need to just realize our relationship with God like this morning is dysfunctional. It's just dysfunctional. Then we cannot sit and abide and commune and fellowship and enjoy God. Like that seems strange to us. If you want maybe a sign of prayerlessness in your life, uh, maybe consider this one. If you want a sign of prayerlessness, here's, here's one way that you know that, that prayerlessness has hit you, is when your public praying is much more fervent, much more passionate Than your private praying. When when, when eyes are on you, when people are listening to you, there's some passion in there, there's some fervency in there, there are some things happening in that prayer. But when there are no eyes to impress, when we're in the closet, you, God, by yourself with Him, man, your prayers fall really flat. Can, Can I just give you this warning? Never underestimate your tendency and ability to do a lot of really good things, even a lot of really good spiritual things for the absolute wrong reason, namely the applause of man. That we can preach for the wrong reasons, we can parent for the wrong reasons, we can do a heck of a lot of good things like pray for all the wrong reasons. Listen to J.C. Ryle address this. He says it like this. And I say furthermore, that of all the evidences, now just heed this warning, of all the evidences of the real work of the Spirit, like a genuine conversion, of all the evidence of the real work of the Spirit, a habit of hearty private prayer is one of the most satisfactory that can be named. A man may preach from false motives, A man may write books and make fine speeches and seem diligent in good works and yet may be Judas Iscariot. But a man seldom goes into his closet and pours out his soul before God in secret unless he is serious, authentic, real. The Lord himself set his stamp on prayer as the best proof of a true conversion. Now, I think it would be good for you just to take a moment and ask yourself the question. If private prayer is the best evidence of true conversion, what sort of evidence would it give about true conversion in your life? If communing with God, enjoying God is the evidence of conversion, what is that saying about us? I mean, just let that settle over you for a second. So the problem with prayer is that we're prayerless. But, but let me just walk one further, step further into that and, and just help you see just for a second here that prayerlessness is, is rooted in something much bigger than just prayerlessness. It's, it's rooted in self-reliance. See, this is the problem with prayer. And I, I told you a second ago that God has done something to me in this area this week. And, and namely, he has started to bring some deep repentance to my heart over prayerlessness. But I want you to see that the problem is not prayerlessness. The problem is deeper and bigger than prayerlessness. The problem is self-reliance and self-dependence. See, prayer at its essence is you holding out your hands and saying, God, I need you. I can't do this without you. I've got no hope without you. It is impossible without you. See, prayer is when our heart sees that and knows that, that we are 110% reliant upon God, dependent upon God. And when our heart begins to sense that and feel that, it naturally leads to prayer. It naturally leads to us before God pouring our hearts out to Him. But prayerlessness, on the other hand, the reason that we're prayerless That the reason that that exists is because we've got a dysfunctional view of us and God. That the problem is we really think that we are self-reliant people. That we've got it together. That we've got the resources we need to make it happen. That we've got everything we need to pull this thing off. We've got the wisdom. We've got the business savvy. We've got everything we need. And can we just see this morning that's a delusion See, when our hearts begin to see that we are actually God-dependent people, the effect is that we pour our heart out to God in prayer, that we commune with God. We spend time with God. We fellowship with God. We enjoy God. As soon as our hearts begin to see that. And then this week, it is like God has both bruised and blessed me by just beginning to rip the scab off of my heart of self-reliance. And I just wonder how many of us in the room need that this morning. Just for God to wreck our heart and our belief, subtly for most of us, that we've really got what we need. If we get into a pinch, we'll go to God. But we we, we pretty much got what we need today. Number four, let me just quickly hit on the results of prayer. The results. Let me just give you two things from this passage, two things on the results of prayer, like things prayer accomplished in the life of Jesus. And we might think about the first one in terms of focus. Look at Matthew or Mark chapter one, verse 36 says this and Simon and those who were with him searched for him and they found him and said to him, everyone is looking for you. Implication. You better get over here right now and get, get with these people. I mean, they've got legitimate needs, like some of these people are sick, some of them are diseased, some of them are demon-oppressed, and you need to come over here and solve the problems. These are legitimate needs in, in, in people's lives. And when you go on in, in Luke uh, chapter 4, verse 42, when it's talking about this same scene, it said the crowds even urged him, tried to keep him from leaving. But then when you keep going here, it's interesting. Look at Jesus' response. Legitimate needs, they would have been good things. I it would have been right and good for Jesus to have stayed and built the ministry in Capernaum, ministering to the, to the crowds that were flocking around him. But look at his response in verse 38. And he said to them, let us go on to the next towns that I may preach there also, for that is why I came out. Jesus said No to a good thing, namely staying at Capernaum so that he could say yes to God's thing, namely going to the next town. So let's just talk for a second here. And I want to just try to articulate the trap that I think a lot of us get kind of into in life. We all have a million good things in front of us, a million opportunities, things that we could be about doing. But the problem is we can't do every good thing. We can't do it. And a lot of us are trying. We have divested our time and energy and effort into a million different things. They're good things. And can I just warn you on this? That chances are for most people in the room, it's not going to be the bad things that rob you from fruitfulness in the kingdom of God. It's going to be a million good things that are distracting you from the best things, from God's things. And the only way you're going to be able to tell from all the good things what few of those things are God's things for you is time with God, getting to know God, allowing God to transfer his heart into your heart so that you feel about these things like he does. That is the only way for you to be able to discern among all the good things what those God things are for you what the great things are for you, what those things are that God would specifically call you to do. Let me illustrate it like this. If you can imagine you having the arm strength to throw a football from here to Hawaii. I know that's, that's ludicrous. But if you could just imagine that. So it sets sail and it looks so good. But just imagine that the problem is you're one degree off in accuracy. One degree. Over the course of it traveling from Dallas to Hawaii, guess what? It lands in the ocean and it's eaten by sharks. Now, here's the thing. You couldn't really even tell that when you first let it go. It looked perfect. It looked great. But it was off one degree. And can I just say what's happening in the room for a lot of us? Our life right now, it's not that you could just come to your life and say, wow, there's some like serious dysfunction or problem there. It's that it's off one or two degrees. And it doesn't even matter over the course of a year, but over the course of a decade, two decades, three decades, you land in the ocean and you get eaten by sharks. Just off one or two degrees. Just, just off on the good things that we should be doing when God's called us to do those great things, these specific things. But I mean, just let that be a warning to you. We need to be before God, asking God to clarify, what are those great things that you have called me to do? So it gives us focus, and here's the second one: it gives us fruitfulness. Look at verse 39. And he went throughout all of Galilee, preaching in their synagogues and casting out demons. And when I pray for Stonegate and for you and for me, I pray for great fruitfulness, and not just over the short term, but over the long haul. Great fruitfulness and great faithfulness from our church, and that only happens like all this good public life, good public ministry only happens when there is good private life underneath that for the long haul. So so let me say it this way. The only way to sustain a life that is being poured out for the good of God and other people is for you to have consistent times where you are refilling with the presence of God in your life. That if you find yourself burned out, depleted, no longer wanting to pour yourself out for other people in mission and ministry, if you find yourself there, it's probably because your private life is not built well enough to sustain your public life your being with god is not is not creating a situation where your doing for god is sustainable i just take service as an example have you ever had that moment where you're serving pouring your life out in ministry and mission and you have that moment where you look up and think well they're not doing anything so why should i do something i'm sick of doing this they're not doing anything so i'm quitting i'm done Now, why is that? Like, like, it's ironic. When did our serving become dependent upon other people serving, right? So so that that mindset and that moment is showing the fruit of not having time with God, filling our heart with, with all that God is, the presence of God, the gospel of God, not filling our hearts with it. A thriving public life over the long haul, doing in ministry can only be sustained by a good private life, being with God. This is what John 15, 5 is saying. Jesus is saying, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You, you better abide in me and I in you, or you will produce no fruit, no public ministry over the long haul, no doing long haul that's going to be fruitful over the long haul. You can't do that unless you are plugged into me. He goes on to say, apart from me, you can do nothing. See if we want fruitfulness over the long haul, doing well in ministry. That means we've got to be connected with God, being before God. A private life has to be there. So, results of prayer, both focus and fruitfulness. And let me let me finish by uh, going here, and we're done. The wonder of prayer. The wonder of prayer. I want to just try to to create in your mind, as we finish today, wonder and awe at what we're talking about this morning. Wonder and awe at this. See, as we talk about prayer being like this picture of you crawling up in your father's lap and whispering in his ear. As we talk about God, you know, prayer being like this picture of you being around the dinner table, intimate with God. If you've grown up around the church or if you've been around Stonegate for long, that that terminology and just those pictures are probably somewhat familiar to you. But if you were a first century Jewish person, that is so foreign to how you think about relating to God that it it would feel bizarre and wild. That this is not the way they related to God. Not the way they thought about relating to God. This is not the way that you spent time with God. So let me just trace this theme throughout the Old Testament. Our sin in Genesis 3 separated us from God. It created a chasm between us and God. So this is the play out of how this thing works in the Old Testament. If you start reading in Exodus, you know that that as God busted the people of Israel out of Egypt, that he would lead them by day in a pillar of cloud and by night in a pillar of fire. And he told Moses that you need to build for me a tabernacle, a tent, a portable place where I will be and be with my people. So he built the tent. And now any place, and, and God would tell Moses, anytime you see my presence, cloud, fire, move, you pack up the tent and you follow my presence. And when you see my presence stop, you pack, unpack the tent and you put it right there. And my presence is gonna be in the tabernacle. That is where I will meet with people. And then you keep reading um, forward in the Old Testament and David got the supplies for the temple and Solomon ended up building the temple where it's no longer gonna be a portable tabernacle. We're gonna build a stationary place, the temple. You can still see the ruins of it today where God will meet with his people. Now, this is what the temple, the tabernacle, this is how it was structured. You'd come into the tabernacle, this temple, and there would be this outer room called the holy place. And this is where the priests would do their work throughout the year. But then you had another room that was separated by a curtain. This big black curtain would separate another room. And this next room, separated by this curtain, was called the most holy place or the holy of holies. And that is where the, the, the presence of God, the spirit of God dwelt. This is where God was in that holy of holies. Now the high priest could only go into that place to meet with God, where the presence of God was. He could only go into that place one time a year. It was on the day of atonement. One man, one time a year, gets God's presence. One man, one time a year, gets through the curtain. And it was said that they would uh, tie a rope onto his leg just in case God killed him, they could draw, drag him out. Not exactly seeker sensitive, right? Right? So so he would go in and he would make atonement for the sins of the people. He would bring in the perfect um, blood of a lamb, perfect lamb. He would bring in that blood, splatter it throughout the room, and he would atone for the sins of the people of Israel. Now Hebrews 9 announces to us great gospel news that Jesus has become our high priest who has gone into the most holy place, the holy of holies. This is how Eugene Peterson describes Hebrews 9, 24, 25, and 26. He says it this way, paraphrasing it. He says, Christ didn't enter the earthly version of the holy place, this holy of holies. He entered the place itself and offered himself to God as the sacrifice for our sins. He doesn't do this every year as the high priest did under the old plan with blood that was not their own. If that had been the case, he would have had to sacrifice himself repeatedly throughout the course of history. But instead, Jesus sacrificed himself once and for all, summing up the other sacrifices in this sacrifice of himself, the final solution of sin. Hebrews is announcing to us this great gospel reality that no longer do we have high priests going into the holy place, atoning for the sins of the people, that on the cross, Jesus entered the holy place. Not not carrying the blood of a perfect lamb, but carrying the blood of his perfect life, and he gave it to atone. Atone means to wipe away, to erase our sins. Th- this is what Jesus did. How do you see that play out? To go to the last chapter or the ch- chapter fifteen of Mark, verse thirty-seven and thirty-eight. Let me just show you this, and we're done. Mark 15, 37 and 38. How did Jesus do this? How did he go into the holy place, make atonement for our sins, wipe away our sin? How did he do that? Mark 15, 37 and 38. And just so you'll have the lead up here, this is Jesus has been betrayed. He has been falsely accused. He's been beaten within an inch of his life. He's been sentenced to death. He's been taken to the outskirts of Jerusalem. He's been nailed to a cross where he is about to die. That's the lead up. Then you get verse uh, 37. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain, verse 38, and the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. I don't know how many of you have seen The Passion of the Christ. Um, This scene in The Passion of the Christ, uh, as soon as Jesus hollers out, he's just died. You've got what looks like a teardrop coming out of heaven. It hits the ground. I don't know if you remember this scene. It hits the ground and all heck breaks loose. The sky darkens. The, the earth begins to shake. And then the Passion of the Christ makes this specific move where it switches scenes over to the temple. And in that temple, you see the curtain. That curtain that separated us from God. That you better not come behind this curtain. Th- that curtain. That curtain. That 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 curtain, you you better not come behind this or you will die. That curtain that separated us from God, separated us from intimacy with God. That curtain in the passion of the Christ was ripped in two. And at that moment we have a new deal with God. No longer is there a curtain where one man, one time a year, gets to go behind it, gets the presence of God. We we've got a new deal with God. Rather than the curtain, now we've got the table. Now we've got God face to face with us, life on life with us. It's no longer you send in your one guy, hope he makes it out alive. Now it's every son and daughter of God around the table of God, intimacy with God, life with God, heart to heart with God. You don't have to bring your these and thous to God. It's this sort of relationship with God now. It's because of Jesus. This is the wonder of prayer. It's because of what Jesus did on the cross that now we can actually crawl up into our Father's lap and whisper in His ear. Amen? Let's pray together. Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.